Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to this week's episode of New Perspectives. This week we're doing a special post-2020 election panel episode featuring myself, Max Huber, your host, and four Nuper contributors who are going to be giving their thoughts on the 2020 elections and politics in general. Real quick, if I could have my four panelists introduce themselves. I am Alex Drecke. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. I am a biology and political science major, and I am a magazine editor with Nuper. Hi, my name is Stephanie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I am a political science and economics major, and I am an editor at Nuper. Hi, I'm Noah Colbert. I am a mathematics and political science major. My pronouns are he, him, and I am a writer at Nuper. Hi there, my name is Taryn Azar. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I'm a journalism poli-sci combined major and I'm a magazine editor with Nuper. Fantastic. I'm really excited to have some familiar faces to new perspectives returning to the show, as well as some, some new people on as well. So without further ado, let's get right into this post-election Nuper panel. At the time of recording, it's Sunday night, November 8th. And what we know at this time is that on Saturday, November 7th, the presidential election was called in favor of Joe Biden after Pennsylvania was called, which pushed him over 270 to claim the Electoral College. At this point in time, we're still waiting for the results from Georgia and North Carolina. So we do not know those yet at that time. Georgia is leaning blue. North Carolina is leaning red. Additionally, the Democrats have retained control of the House of Representatives, but they have lost some of their majority from the 2018 midterms. And finally, the U.S. Senate is still up in the air since both of the Georgia Senate seats are going to runoffs in January. And so it won't be for a few more months until we know which party has officially taken control of the Senate. With the state of the race out of the way, I want to hear from each of the panelists about what your initial reactions and kind of first thoughts are on the 2020 general elections. I am incredibly relieved. Um, the last day or so since they officially called the race um, has felt sort of like I can finally take a breath after a very stressful few days since Tuesday. I think looking at all of the news and stuff, I think everybody is, you know, really, really excited, at least, you know, the people that supported Biden over half the country. Um, but it's just, I think, a huge deal for everyone who's been working so hard uh, to ensure a democratic victory, um, knowing that, like, there's still a ton of work to do, but that this is a really good first step. Um, and that like this is just the start of what we're going to need to do over the next four years to sort of implement everything that we've been working towards for the last four. Um, I would say that I'm also quite pleased with the outcome of the election, mostly because of the Senate. Um, I'm definitely glad that um, there's some balance there to help moderate some of the policies. That said, I was kind of shocked that there was no blue wave. Maybe it's because the polls were predicting that there would be such a big, big turnout for Democrats. Um, but I was pretty shocked that there wasn't, and it was so incorrect, especially with the Senate races, since so many key Senate races had been predicted to go blue, including like Iowa. Well, Georgia still might, but that was very shocking to me. And I think I've already touched on this briefly, but also the fact that the polls were so off. I think that it's, except for the Trafalgar poll, I think that that's pretty shocking and is indicative of the fact that we need to do some serious change in terms of how we're deciding whether, like, how elections are going to go, um, because it was pretty shocking how wrong they were. Um, and I always like to look at data first, and it's crazy that if you were looking at data, you would have been so off about how this election was going to go. My first, my first impressions about this election were relief to finally find that Joe Biden was able to defeat Donald Trump. And speaking from the progressive side, obviously Joe Biden was not the candidate that we won, but there's a certain degree of satisfaction from getting rid of Donald Trump, who has been incredibly dominant over 
every aspect of American life. There was an article that was written in the New York Times last week about by Michelle Goldberg about how Trump has destroyed American culture. And I think that's definitely something that I was glad to see like be repudiated. I'm tired of reading about everything that Donald Trump has done. I'm tired of seeing every like book on the bestsellers list be a tell-all book. But also, I'm very disappointed with the way the Democrats performed in down-ballot races. Key seats, like as Stephanie pointed out, in Iowa and in North Carolina, and especially Maine, these were seats that were projected by a lot of people to be able to go blue. Another seat being South Carolina, which obviously wasn't much of a contest, but based on the way you saw it, Lindsey Graham's posturing on Fox News, obviously he was concerned about the seat. So it seems like the Democrats have an incredibly poor messaging problem in these down ballot races. So they were able to eke out a victory in the general election because running Joe Biden ran a campaign that was based on I'm not Trump. And that could have cost him, but it pushed him over the edge. But the thing is, down ballot Democrats didn't have a Trump to run against, and it cost them because they had no coherent message. I'm definitely very curious to see how the next few weeks play out in terms of the fight that Trump and his supporters are putting up with regard to a Biden victory. Um, I will say that I'm relieved, but I'm not impressed. And um, as many activists has, have expressed, and I will echo, today we celebrate, tomorrow we work. I really appreciate all of those, those insights. It's, it, I think it really captures just a lot of the, the emotions, the ideas, the impacts that have been floating around in the, in the wake of the general elections. So my first question to the panel is, this year we saw a lot of battleground states really enter the fray. Some places that historically we would not have expected to see be swing states. And this year they were, you know, Apple News was listing them as potential battlegrounds like Florida obviously is always a swing state these days, but Georgia, North Carolina, Texas even were thrown into the mix of potential swing states. And I know that some of these swing states were even our home states for some of the people on this panel. And so I'm hoping to hear from some of our panelists, what do you think caused some of these swing states to go the way they did? Why were some of them swing states to begin with? And what was the role they played in deciding this election? I think some of the states that you mentioned were sort of listed as swing states, but nobody was really sure. Um, I think that particularly for Democrats, like Texas and Florida and Georgia were sort of seen as long shots. Um, they like historically have not been super favorable to Democrats, um, especially Texas and Georgia. So those were sort of like people were looking to them as potential, I think because of um, sort of the trends over the last few years, I think especially looking at Texas and Georgia, if you're looking at Beto O'Rourke um, in Texas and Stacey Abrams in Georgia, their races that became so high profile in within the last couple of years sort of made people think that these states could be trending blue um, and they could be potential pickups for the Democrats in 2020. Um, obviously, Texas was pretty definitively red, um, which I think disappointed some people, but wasn't that surprising. Georgia has been really surprising. As of about 6.30 p.m. on Sunday night, uh, Biden was up 10,000 votes in Georgia. They are going to a recount, um, but it's looking like he's going to win that. And I think, like, all of the states that flipped and also looking at the blue wall that fell in 2016 um, of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, the reason why they flipped back to blue was because of the incredible organization in those states. Um, there were so many people on the ground working on flipping them blue, uh, getting those votes back for the Democrats, uh, particularly in the cities, in Milwaukee, in Detroit, um, in Philadelphia, it was the people in the cities and particularly black organizers who really managed to turn out those votes for the Democrats. Um, and they're pretty much the entire reason why they flipped blue. Kind of jumping off that point there, Alex, um, I was pretty bummed out by my home state of Ohio. 
And um, I know that, you know, white suburban women were a massive voter block, um, especially in rural counties in Ohio and really across swing states. Um, it's pretty disappointing that Ohio is really technically not a swing state anymore, although it has been historically. Um, now it is pretty solid red. But I will say that it was super impressive to see how indigenous voters swung the 2020 election, um, especially in Arizona and Wisconsin, where they had unprecedented turnouts. Um, and that was really key in swinging those states um, toward Joe. So that was really interesting. Tara, as, as you point out, the indigenous vote was certainly very, very much in favor of Joe Biden. Uh, some of the kind of the most pronounced disparities that I think we saw from any group, um, any demographic in this election. And going off on the topic of demographics, I'm interested to hear from our panel about some of the ways that key voting demographics like the Black community and the Latinx community, the role that they played in the 2020 election and the role that they had in determining the, the outcomes that we've seen. I don't think anyone was expecting Trump to garner the highest percentage of non-white voters in recent GOP history at all. In, um, from 2004 to 2006, it was pretty common for, for example, like black men to vote Democrat. It was between 88 to 95% pretty consistently, but in 2020, 18% um, of black men voted for Trump and double the percentage of black women um, voted for Trump, which is pretty surprising and shocking considering, once again, what the polls were saying, but also what the rhetoric was surrounding the Trump presidency. And I really do think that it's more a reflection of Biden's shortcomings than Trump's successes. I think that Biden is kind of out of touch and frankly, sometimes just very offensive to someone who is Latino themselves. I think he does see POCs as a monolith a lot of the time. And I think he just expects our votes. And I think he was pretty shocked to not just automatically get all of them. There are numerous examples of him saying like offensive things. But I think that the reality that Democrats can lose those votes and the fact that it happened in 2020 is going to make Democrats rethink how they're going to do elections in the future. And I also think it's going to help Republicans in the future because they have a much more sustainable voting block if they're able to maintain this momentum they gained from 2020. So I'm interested to see how that goes. Some very good points made by Stephanie. I think when we're looking at the demographics, it's very tempting to draw conclusions that favor our sides and Obviously, a lot of Republicans are saying that this suddenly draw means that the minority vote is in play for them. But I would probably want to remind them that the minority vote is still very low for Republicans. And the fact that 20 percent of black men is considered to be an incredibly high portion of the vote is somewhat concerning. And it's still overall around, I believe, 12 percent. So I think there's still a lot of inroads that the Republican Party needs to make in that demographic and they can't be just based off of running someone like uh, running against somebody like Joe Biden who has definitely made a lot of gaffes but also I think there are some problems in the way that the Republican Party has been messaging to say nothing about their actual policy with Donald Trump spent a lot of time amplifying the voices of rappers and like other on like black hip hop entrepreneurs in a way of garnering their votes, which if we're saying that Joe Biden has been insulting in certain ways, that is true, but also it portrays a very insulting and demeaning depiction of the black community that Biden, not the Biden, that Donald Trump believed that just simply showcasing rappers is all that's needed to drive out the black vote. And I think also with certain operatives in the Republican campaign trying to get Kanye West on the ballot because that would definitely detract votes from Biden, which didn't happen. So there's a lot of change that needs to happen on that front. And in cities like Milwaukee, in Detroit and Atlanta, there's unlimited opportunity for Democrats if they are willing to take advantage of it. 94% of the city of Detroit went for Joe Biden. And the, the turnout of Black voters inevitably like helped Joe Biden in the end 
which has been a running theme in his campaign. Like Joe Biden in February was low on cash, hadn't won any primaries, and was buoyed by his win in South Carolina. And ultimately, I think the Democrats would do well to realize that suddenly in this election, everyone, all the never Trumpers or Lincoln Project Republicans who, like John Kasich, who promised, they promised Ohio, they didn't deliver Ohio. They promised Florida, they didn't deliver it. But the organizers in Philadelphia and in Atlanta were able to fulfill their promise. There's a lot that went on when it came to voting by demographics, the the different ways that these demographics split in various states um, is particularly interesting to a lot of people. Stephanie, one quick follow-up question I have for you is about the Latina community going. Um, much has been made of how the vote in Florida went in favor of Trump, while the vote in Arizona went in favor of Biden. And I was wondering if you had any insights or thoughts you'd like to share about that outcome in particular. Yes, absolutely. This is pretty simple, I think. It comes down to people who have lived under socialist governments, like a lot of the Latino communities in Florida have. So like lots of Cubans, lots of Venezuelans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, even Brazilians, right? They understand what it's like to live under oppressive regimes. And so I think that they, when they hear the word socialism, they're automatically spooked. And I think that the right has been doing that for Democrats and saying that they're increasingly socialist. But also I think Democrats have embraced the term socialism a little bit more than they had previously as well. And I think that that absolutely contributed to Biden's defeat. I think that if he'd been a little bit more um, moderate, which I know is saying <laughs> a lot in front of a bunch of progressives, because you guys would think that he's very moderate anyways. But um, I think if he'd been a little bit more moderate and distanced himself a little bit, from the rest of the Democratic Party, which is difficult as well. Um, I think that he might have had more of a play for those individuals in Florida, specifically the Latinos there. I just wanna um, chime in here also with regard to Arizona. It's amazing how Arizona went blue. Um, I think a really key county in making that happen. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if it's been called, but it's definitely leaning blue is Maricopa County. Um, and I know that that county has seen um, a lot of activity that is really, really not satisfactory to a lot of immigrant and Latinx communities. Um, you know, very stringent deportation. And then also um, the former county sheriff saying praise of the KKK essentially and said that it was an honor to be likened to the KKK. So I feel like that also historic um, narrative informing voters in Arizona was a huge part of them going blue. It's very interesting the, the different factors at play in both of these states. Another key demographic that I really want to get to discussing in this panel since it is our demographic is Generation Z. This was my first time voting in a presidential election. I assume it was many of your first times voting in a presidential election. And I'm curious to hear what you have to say about the way that we and our peers influenced the results of the 2020 election. So um, the youth turnout probably wasn't quite as high as a lot of people would have hoped that it would be. Um, especially based on sort of the movements that have been gaining traction, like March for Our Lives and the Sunrise Movement over the last few years that have really driven youth engagement. Um, but youth turnout was up from 2016. It was up to 53% uh, in 2020 uh, from 45% in 2016. Um, so there was definitely a huge drive and a huge push to get youth voters more engaged in this cycle. Um, I think there were so many issues that really hit close to home for a lot of people our age, um, specifically with like talking about like college debt, talking about climate change, um, things like that, that we really care about that were huge deciding factors in this election, not only about who we were voting for, but whether we were voting at all. In regards to who we were voting for, 62% um, of youth voters cast their ballot for Biden versus 35% for Trump. Uh, which is 
obviously a huge gap. Almost twice as many voted for Biden over Trump. Um, that does break down differently depending on race demographics. 86% um, of black youth voters voted for Biden versus only 51% of white youth voters. Um, but overall, the youth vote, like the Gen Z vote, broke very heavily for Biden. And I think that was a huge deciding factor in the uh, final outcome of the election. And even though the turnout wasn't quite as high as um, many of us may have wanted it to be, it's pretty huge that the turnout was as large as it was, um, given how many Gen Z and late millennial voters really don't like Joe Biden a whole lot. Um, remember, OK, Boomer, those those memes were really targeted toward Joe Biden and, um, you know, Kamala, Kamala Harris, um, say what you want about her. Um, there is something to be said about former attorney general um, running for vice president and, uh, during this phase of Black Lives Matter protests. Um, I know that a lot of people have garnered a lot of criticism toward her being, you know, a, a former cop, essentially. Um, so it's it's pretty big um, that folks um, really put their own personal views aside. Um, Gen Z really put their uh, personal wants aside. Um, I think that the last four years were really key in kind of pushing that, especially the last few months, and in helping us realize that our vote um, had way further reaching implications than just for our personal needs. Yeah, we will definitely be returning to the Gen Z question later in the show. Because uh, I definitely want to get everyone's thoughts on the impact of Generation Z. Before we get to that, some other topics that I want to get up front are about how the Trump campaign has been reacting to the news of his defeat. A lot has been discussed about his intent to pursue legal challenges to the results of the election, including recounts and lawsuits in a lot of the key swing states that decided this election. And so I want to hear, do we think that these legal challenges are going to carry water at the end of the day? Or even if they do, are they going to be able to decisively change the outcome of this election? Uh, short answer, no. I think it's interesting to see, and we all sort of knew this was coming. Um, Trump has sort of been setting it up for months to challenge the outcome of this election if he did end up losing. Um, he's been saying for months that, you know, mail-in ballots were gonna cause voter fraud, that we had to watch all of these battleground states because Democrats were gonna try to steal the election. Um, so we def it's definitely not a surprise that he is proceeding with legal challenges. Um, however, several lawsuits have already been dismissed in battleground states, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Um, due to a lack of evidence, there is basically no evidence whatsoever that there was any kind of voter fraud. Um, there were watchers at all of like the ballot counting. Um, they tried to challenge saying that, oh, like the GOP observers weren't allowed into the ballot counting. Um, but like stuff like that just does not hold weight. And there's no evidence that there was any wrongdoing or any fraud whatsoever. So really any legal, even any like real legal challenges trying to go through the courts is probably not going to go anywhere. They can certainly try to challenge for recounts. Um, Georgia has automatically been called for a recount because it's so narrow. Um, if Trump wants, he'll probably call for a recount in Pennsylvania, maybe in Michigan. And the recounts definitely are a more like viable path to picking up a few more votes than a legal challenge would be. But even then, recounts very rarely actually shift enough votes to change the outcomes. Um, so I think basically the legal challenges and the threat of legal challenges is just Trump sort of going through the stages of grief. He's very much in denial right now. Um, question is whether he will get to acceptance by the time the inauguration rolls around. But there's really, uh, as one lawyer put it, it would be more worth it would be more worthwhile to sue a ham sandwich than the state of Pennsylvania. So I do not think they're going anywhere. Yeah, I also concur that these lawsuits are baseless, and it's kind of speaks to the 
bold nature of this administration that they're claiming that in certain states that are entirely controlled by Republicans, like Georgia, where the governor is a Republican, the state legislature is Republican, the secretary of state is Republican, that there was some widespread, as Rudy Giuliani put it, Democratic Party machine in the big city is rigging the elections. I think that part of the problem with these lawsuits is the fact that they played their hand too early. This was has been talked about for months, the potential for this, and people on the left were all talking about the idea that Donald Trump would try to steal the election, and it just it got too much press. They probably would have been better served maybe not telegraphing their moves as as openly. And when I was very surprised by, I don't know if I would say how little attention, but how people kind of dismissed it when Donald Trump came out around 2 p.m., 2 a.m. on Wednesday morning and declared that he had won. Because although everyone knew that would happen, I expected that the mainstream media would be all over that. And obviously they covered it, but they definitely, I don't think, gave it the legitimacy. And I was surprised and glad to see that Americans didn't hand the, the legitimacy that it didn't deserve. I appreciate both of your insights into this question. Just to reiterate for everyone listening, as Alex put it, the short answer of whether these legal challenges will change the election is no. Moving on a little bit, now that we have started as a, as a nation and as a political community to make our peace with the results of the election. What often happens in this aftermath is that the two political parties and a lot of the political groups will kind of change their course now that they know the results of the election, what kind of popular mandates are out there. And so I want to hear from some of the panelists about what they think different Uh, political factions will be doing in the wake of this election. So the first one I want to hear about is, I want to hear, Stephanie, what you have to say about how this will impact the Republican Party and what they will be thinking about when it comes time for the next round of elections. I mean, I think that a lot of Republicans are disappointed to lose the executive because it is very powerful. I think a lot of them are also excited to not have to stalk Twitter all the time, see where the country's going. So I'm sure that it's like a nice balance between people. And I think that it's important to note that there has been a pretty solid subset of the Republican Party that leans towards a more like Trumpy way of governing. And that's been happening since Reagan. So it's probably not going to go away. But in my opinion, Trump losing is not really a big deal for the Republican agenda, especially if we hold the Senate and considering that we picked up seats in the House. So I think it's also important to consider that the next election cycle, like the midterm, has some pretty big Democratic seats on the line there. So Republicans will probably pick up seats then too. So I don't think it's the end of the world by any means for the Republican political agenda. Though I know some people would disagree with me just on the basis of politics, they would think that if Trump's not in office, then it's automatically a major loss for the Republican Party. Um, But I actually don't see it that way at all. And I think that I've been consuming a lot of Republican media, and I think that even they are talking about it in kind of a wasteful way where they're like, so Trump's out of office, but we have the Senate, so it's fine. Whereas before they were like, yeah, we're going to vote for Trump, 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 Trump. So I think that everyone's kind of shifting away from that kind of rhetoric and that kind of style. And I won't speak to like whether or not I agree with that, but I think that it's definitely happening. And I think that it's also noticeable by the fact that Fox News called um, states for Biden way earlier than other publications did. And I think that's an important shift to note. Thank you, Stephanie. And then another very important player in politics now, Uh, we're not going to dwell too much on the results for the Democrats. Obviously, that is something that the mainstream media will be covering in exorbitant detail in the coming weeks. But something I do want to talk about is what does this mean for the progressives, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that has, their star has been rising, particularly since the 2018 midterms with the success of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, the, the squad, so they're called, kind of gaining traction in national governance. 
So Noah, I wanted to hear from you what you think this election and Joe Biden's victory will mean for the progressive agenda and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. I would just like to start by saying I would actually agree with Stephanie when she says that things are looking pretty good for the Republican Party right now. And I think that also spells a lot of doom for the progressive wing of the party, because already we are seeing what was the most predictable pivot in maybe political history. I might be exaggerating here, but as the Democrats have already started to blame the progressive wing of the party for losing seats in the House and not picking up them in the Senate. And with the fact that the Democrats didn't get the Senate, now a lot of issues are dead on arrival. The progressive wing of the party was starting to prepare to pressure Joe Biden on certain issues like court packing or police reform and admitting new states. Those are not probably not going to happen unless the Democrats by some miracle pick up the two seats in Georgia runoff. But I to go to go back to the blaming of progressives, it's kind of indicative of how centrist and interested in appeasing Republicans the Democratic Party is right now, that already we have people like Abigail Spanberg who are talking about how their whole agenda or their whole messaging was ruined because people in their district were telling them about socialism or defund the police. And from a progressive perspective, this is pretty nonsensical. Like Spanberg is a former CIA agent. And if someone, if she, in her district, voters can't figure out whether she's for defunding the police, then that speaks to her failures as a campaigner. But like now we've shifted to because people like AOC exist, even though they campaigned really hard for Joe Biden, somehow they are to blame for the failures of people in other districts. An interesting thing that was shown on GovTrack was that as people in districts moved to the right, their support actually dropped. So I, what I think this shows is just that the Democrats need to stand for something other than not being Donald Trump or not being a Republican. And part of the reason for that is because it actually enables what Stephanie said earlier is the socialism charge. The ideas that the progressive wing of the party push are very, actually a lot more popular than people would believe. And if you can look to the results of certain referendums around the country to see this, while voters in Florida rejected Joe Biden, they actually approved of a $15 minimum wage hike. So obviously it's not the idea that's the problem. It's the fact that Democrats are running on nothing and enabling Republicans to call them socialists. Yeah, I think Noah hit on pretty much all of the really relevant points here. But I think just something important to note is that progressives turned out for Joe Biden. He could not have won this election without the progressive wing of the party. He could not have won this election without uh, people of color, especially in cities, who are way more progressive than the broader party as a whole. He really, like, he needed the progressive wing of the party in order to win this election. He needed Bernie's supporters uh, he needed people who like AOC and the other members of the squad. I mean, you could see like Ilhan Omar in Minnesota after she won um, a pretty tough primary and she knew her seat was safe for the general. She spent months campaigning uh, for Joe Biden to turning out votes specifically for Joe Biden to make sure that people in her district not only were turning out to support her, but were going to turn out and support Biden and support other candidates on the ballot who were not as progressive as her. So I think it's really important going forward that the Democratic Party looks at who actually delivered this victory and sort of changes their ideas, changes their messaging to account for that. Um, because I think going forward, they cannot continue to just take progressive votes for granted. They cannot continue to take the youth vote, the black vote, the Latino vote for granted. They really need to put in the work and look at the organizers who delivered this victory in the swing states. Um, and try to if they and if they can't like broaden their messaging if they can't broaden their coalition to encompass these people and the issues that they care about then they're going to lose that support um and it's just going to end up terribly for them in the next couple of cycles in addition to just how the election and the aftermath impacts the political parties and the political factions of this country there's also been 
as there is in basically every election, a substantial impact on the public and the way that people react to the election. And as we are all members of the public, I wanted to hear from all of the panelists on what their experience and what they have been seeing a lot of since the election was called for Joe Biden on Saturday and what they see as being kind of the the way that people are reacting to this news. I think still kind of speaking to um, the progressive reaction to the election, Tara and I both attended a protest um, in Boston on Wednesday. Uh, it was planned regardless of who won the election, whether or not it had been called on Wednesday night, um, people were still gonna show up. Um, there were a ton of speakers from different organizations in the city. Um, the Sunrise Movement was there. A bunch of just different groups in Boston, progressive groups um, were planning this, even if Biden had been declared the winner by Wednesday night. And it was just sort of like a message of, first of all, it was don't let Trump steal the election. It was still a focus on make sure all of the votes are counted, make sure that it's actually a fair election and that we know who the true winner is. Um, but it was also just a message of the work isn't over. Uh, a lot of, there were a lot of like black activists, a lot of LGBT people um, who were focusing on the fact that just because Trump is out of office doesn't mean that we can stop fighting, that there's still going to be a lot, there's still so many issues in this country that need to be addressed and that will be easier under a Biden administration, um, but you can't stop fighting. Uh, so sort of the reaction from that wing of the public has been like, this is great, we're going to take the win, we see this as a victory and we're grateful for it, but we still have a lot of work to do. I think that the aftermath for Republicans is pretty split, um, to be honest, and I think that it, again, depends on who you're talking to and on what side of Republicanism they fall and whether they're more of a Trump supporter or more like just an average Republican. When looking at Republican media, I think that it is overall pretty accepting of the results of the election. Of course, they say that they're going to wait to hear what the lawsuits have to say, but that what the lawsuits say are accurate and that's what we should be doing. So I don't think that there's a lot of like conspiracy theories um, going around like the more conservative media sources. Of course, if you go to listen like Alex Jones, I'm sure he's like saying a bunch of stuff that's like just not founded in any facts. That was going to happen anyways. So I don't think we can be too surprised by that. But if we're looking at like the Daily Wire or even like Breitbart, I think that they're pretty accepting of where things have fallen. And I don't think that there's going to be too much contestion from that front, though there certainly may be from um, some more extreme Trump supporters once the results of the um, court cases come out. I think it's maybe a little misleading to put all of the sources or publications like the Daily Wire as indicative of the entire conservative media, because as someone who's looked at some of the things that they've said, while Ben Shapiro and Michael Knowles and all the other people, the Daily Wire seem to have been more accepting of it. That has not been reflected in other conservative media. Mark Levin tweeted out something where he basically called upon state legislatures to appoint electors who would vote for Donald Trump. The president of the United States himself has clearly not conceded the election, and certain people who have gone on Fox have also, who are sitting Congress people, have parroted his conspiracy theories. And an interesting thing to see was that the top performing links on U.S. Facebook pages in the last hour were Donald Trump. Donald Trump has been the biggest distributor of lies and misinformation that have been at the center of people who have chosen not to accept the election. So I, while it's important to maybe look at certain people who have accepted it, the vast, there are a large amount of people in this country who are not accepting of it. And Donald Trump is a bigger part of the reason why. I don't disagree with you. I think that you do make a fair point. And I do think that there are some individuals who are not going to concede the election. That said, I think that the majority of Republicans have kind of like dealt with it and moved on. And you're right. I can't say the Daily Wire isn't representative automatically of all of the Republican population, but I think the Daily Wire is like a very legitimate source that Republicans look to and trust in terms of like, they will give you facts. They will tell you points that they don't necessarily agree with whether or not that's the case is different. But I do think that a lot of people look to that to see like legitimate facts 
from the right word perspective. And I think that the fact that they're accepting it, like for example, Michael Knowles, Michael Knowles is a podcast with Ted Cruz. He's like very far right. And he would be the first person I would expect to be saying that there was election fraud. And yet, I mean, he's making jokes about it, but he's not, he's not like falling into step with Trump. And I think there are lots of Republicans like, wait, I don't know about that. So I think that's significant and something to be acknowledged. I would say something that's very interesting is that disinformation has become so subtle in a lot of groups that it's not even necessarily blatant. It's not necessarily as big as QAnon or whatever. I feel like disinformation has crept into multiple different tiny, um, almost undetectable facets of the way that people are interacting, um, especially with this election, but just with politics in general. You know, I know Eric Trump retweeted um, content on Twitter that um, directly tied to the QAnon conspiracy theory. Um, and Trump has certainly added fuel to that fire in his, um, in his election results um, speech, which was fact-checked in real time by many outlets and um, even cut short because of the magnitude of disinformation he was spreading. It's very interesting to see um, the response to this election in particular. As Alex mentioned, we um, attended a protest on Wednesday that was also led by Boston Socialist Alternative and the Freedom Fighters Coalition. I suspect, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but I suspect that um, Boston Socialist Alternative will be gaining a lot of new members in the weeks and months to come. Thank you all for your thoughts on, on the aftermath of the election. One question that I know I have been thinking a lot about, and I think it, we're really going to, as a, as a nation, really have a lot of discourse about, is the how are we going to make sense of the Trump presidency, which is set to come to its conclusion in early 2021? Is the Trump presidency, is the 2016 election, is this an aberration? Is this kind of a glitch in the system? Or is this indicative of something, some larger, more powerful force at play in American politics that we can expect to continue to shape politics in the coming years and decades? I would say no. Um, Trumpism and Trump himself are not an aberration. Uh, Trump was a symptom, but just because you've eradicated a symptom does not mean you've cured the disease. Just because we have defeated Trump and gotten him out of office doesn't mean a lot for the state of politics. Obviously, it's a good thing um, that he was defeated, but all of the systems that allowed him to become president to even get within spitting distance of the Oval Office are still in place. All of the racial resentment, the quote-unquote economic anxiety, the reactionary politics that allowed Trump to become president still exist in the United States, um, and they are not something that, that's fixed just solely by electing a new president. Um, not to mention that even despite everything that Trump did, all of the horrible things that he said, all of the terrible policies that he enacted, his uh, approval rating among Republicans stayed sky high throughout his entire presidency. As of October 2020, he still had a 95% approval rating among Republicans, um, and that approval rating has not dropped below 80% since December 2017. Um, so I think it's really important to acknowledge what allowed Trump, first of all, to even become president, and then what uh, allowed him to act the way he did well in office. Um, and I think going forward, especially over the next two years, up until the midterms in 2022, um, and then until the, pres the next presidential election, a lot of Republicans are going to attempt a redemption arc, particularly the ones who may not have like publicly considered themselves never Trumpers, um, but were not as vocally supportive of him, but sort of just sat back and let him do whatever he wanted to do because it meant they got to stay in power. Um, they're going to try to redeem themselves and act like they weren't that bad, act like we can go back to whatever normal Republican politics was, when really it's impossible. Everything that allowed Trump to take power still exists, uh, and you can't fix the system solely by electing a Democratic president. Um, there's a lot of things that need to be taken care of in order to eliminate the possibilities of having another Trump um, in the next four years, in the next eight years, whenever. But I think that Trumpism and this particular brand of Republican politics 
um, is not an aberration. It is a logical conclusion of where politics has been heading for the last few decades. Um, so I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done if we want to avoid another Trump in the future. I would agree with Alex. The Republican Party, I think, will have elements of Trumpism for quite some time. And I think it already has had some, because here we have a party that has for a very long time been deified people who make a lot of money, has like been pretty overt, especially in the last 10 years, about its racism and nativism, and has enabled some of the most anti-scientific parts of the country and conspiracy-prone types of people. And only in a party like the Republican Party, could someone like Donald Trump take office? Because at the debates in 2015, 2016, virtually every time Republicans tried to launch attacks on Donald Trump, the most common deflection that Donald Trump went to was, I have more money than this guy. I'm, I can't be worse than him. I have more money. And that has been, in my opinion, the result of a party that just simply believes in a form of economic social Darwinism that any, if you have earned a lot of money, then you must be successful. And furthermore, this sort of tying Trumpism to being something distinct has been something that the Democrats have enabled Republicans to be able to do with their acceptance of groups like the Lincoln Project and Never Trumpers, they've basically helped Republicans rehabilitate their image and pretend that they were something that they're not. Thank you, Noah, for your, your strong words on this topic. The last thing I really want to get into with this panel, since I know we're coming close to time, is that Gen Z is here to stay. We are young. We're not going to die anytime soon. Fingers crossed. And our impact on politics is just starting to be felt and will certainly become the one of the dominant political forces in the coming decades. And so I'm hoping to hear from my fellow Gen Z cohort what you think our impact on politics will be as we head forward into the 2020s and the 2030s and beyond. I think that one of the really important points that we need to acknowledge when talking about Gen Z is that I think that the polarization of our country is really really well reflected in Generation Z, where the Demo like the liberals are more liberal and the conservatives are way more conservative. Of course, that doesn't apply to everyone, but I do think that it's much harder to find moderacy in Gen Z. That said, I do think that people get more conservative as they age. They start getting the right opinion. I'm kidding, of course. Um, but <laughs> they do shift to that side more. So I'm interested to see whether that will be the case since so many Gen Zers, I think, are pretty adamantly liberal and their portion, a portion of their identity is pretty liberal. So I think that it'd be very interesting to see how that plays out and how um, and whether we see the same trend that we've seen in generations now of shifting rightward with age. That's a really interesting point, Steph. And I think that that is definitely very relevant to understanding our place within the voter block. I think what's really interesting about Generation Z in particular is that we're seeing the rise of the independent Gen Z, right? Like, our generation doesn't really feel tied to the same traditional party lines, um, especially within the bipartisan system as um, previous generations. And this isn't new. It's certainly not 2020 specific, but a huge portion of the electorate does not feel represented by either major party. I think that Gen Z might be a tipping point just because overwhelmingly um, we don't feel represented by the Democratic establishment or the Republican establishment, right? So I feel like um, giving, <laughs> giving space to the fact that Gen Z is more radical in general than any other generation probably means that um, a socialist alternative will become more popular as time goes on. And, you know, Bernie, Democratic Socialist, right, his base was largely young voters, largely Gen Z voters and um, late millennials, as I'll call them. You know, a very strong majority of millennials, I don't think that this um, data has really been 
drawn from Gen Z just because right now we're kind of still a little narrow, right? It's like voters 18 to 23 right now. Um, but a strong majority of millennials, like 71%, according to NBC News, say that they need, they want to see a third major party in the United States, which is huge. Um, and I don't think that millennials are the only ones to reflect that. So I think Gen Z will be a major turning point, not to mention the fact that we've kind of like revolutionized the way that people interact with the news and with media, especially with social media, right? Now you see your grandma on Facebook. And I think that our generation was kind of like the first to push that different trend of not really, you know, following those traditional routes. So I think we're pretty significant and I think we're going to play a pretty significant role um, in the years to come. Yeah, I think also an important thing to remember when like any politicians or any strategists are talking about Gen Z voters is that if you want young people to turn out for you, you need to have policies that young people like. I think it's really important that politicians don't just take young people for granted and that they actually listen to us, that they actually focus on the issues that we really care about. Stuff like Tara touched on this, but the fact that the majority of young people in the Democratic primary supported Bernie Sanders, who was the oldest candidate in the race, or in the Massachusetts Senate primary this election cycle, the reason why Ed Markey beat Joe Kennedy, who was a much younger challenger, was because of the youth vote, um, that young people were really inspired, not by, you know, like, like looking at it, you would think, oh, the young people are gonna vote for the young people, that they want to see their own age represented in politics, that they're gonna vote for Joe Kennedy, they're gonna vote for Pete Buttigieg. But the reason why young people voted for Ed Markey, voted for Bernie Sanders, is because their policies spoke to them. Um, so I think it's really important for politicians to take that into account, that Gen Z is becoming a larger and larger voting block. They're become, we're becoming more engaged, like we're becoming more radical. And if you want to get the attention and get the support of young voters, you need to actually put in the work and acknowledge the issues that we care about instead of just taking it for granted that you people will vote for you because you're a better alternative. Alex, that just reminded me of something I completely forgot to mention, and that's that Gen Z is more diverse than any other voting block. And that's a huge point for us to recognize. Also more politically engaged. And even though we're becoming increasingly radical, a lot of data does suggest that folks on the right who are part of the Gen Z cohort, so to speak, are more left-leaning in their social policy, right? So a lot of Gen Z Republicans don't feel represented by the Republican Party because you know, for a number of reasons, right? I mean, like LGBTQ plus rights, a lot of Gen Z voters who are Republicans have friends who are in those communities and they don't, they don't like the attacks on, on um, LGBTQ plus citizens, people in general. Um, another huge one is climate change. So just a few other things to keep in mind. We're politically engaged. And as Alex mentioned, really care about policy. And that's the key to our hearts. Something that Tara and I think Stephanie both said is that people are finding themselves more disaffected with the two parties, but also being moving to extremes. Those two, a listener might seem like they are things that contradicted each other, but I think it's very important to recognize that they don't actually, and they can occur at the same time, that people are moving to the extremes, but also more often identifying as independent. We've seen a rise in a lot of people, especially on the right, defining their positions in a new way and presenting them as if they're in the middle or that they're anti-establishment. And it's a very interesting phenomenon with the rise of shows like, like Joe Rogan's show, which is one of the most popular podcasts in the world. Certain people like Tim Pool or Dave Rubin, who like to present themselves as they're in the middle, things like that, but they also do tend to serve the function of pushing people in a way that's further to the right under the guise of certain things like anti establishment. And anti establishment views can be seen on both sides. So I think that's maybe the defining characteristic of Gen Z voters is anti establishment, but whether or not you get pushed to the right or to the left, it depends on what type of media you consume. For, for all my, my relatives and older listeners listening, if you want to know what 
college kids are thinking about this election and politics, here it is. Well, I wanna thank all my panelists for joining me this evening to talk about their thoughts on the election and what they've been noticing in the aftermath of it. I wanna give everyone on the panel a quick opportunity to give us some closing statements and direct our attention towards things that they think are going to be very important coming up. Yeah, just uh, really important things that are coming up that are going to be important is obviously those Georgia Senate runoff elections in January. Um, this, the 2020 elections aren't over. The whoever wins both of those seats um, in January is going to have control of the Senate for the next two years. So obviously very important, uh, no matter which way it goes. Um, but then just, just sort of like general closing, closing statement, I feel a lot better right now than I have felt in the last four years, um, contrasting the way that I felt on election night 2016 with the way that I feel right now is, I don't think it could possibly be more different. I think there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful. There's a lot of work to do, but I feel really good right now. And I hope that this feeling kind of lasts um, and that we can sort of take this energy and continue into the next four years and just keep trying to make statements, uh, change policy, and just like make as much of a difference as we possibly can. I think that what we should be looking out for is how minorities are going to be voting in the upcoming years, especially in more local races. Um, I'm really interesting, interested to see how the GOP demographic shifts and where it's going. Um, I hope we can become a more diverse party, one upheld by like Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, and just a more diverse group of people. And I'm really interested to see how those shifts are going to go because minority votes matter, female votes matter. And I think it's time that the GOP starts prioritizing those. I think it's interesting to, as Alex pointed out, it'll be interesting to see how Democrats and progressives handle the Georgia runoffs. Those runoffs are the Democrats' last chance of taking the Senate, although it's a, certainly a tall order. If they are possibly able to get those seats, it would be a massive victory for the Biden administration. It would allow them to be able to get policy passed, get legislation through, and potentially it might be the difference between Joe Biden actually being able to assemble a decent cabinet, which a cabinet that is effective is very important in being able to get policy through, even if you can't pass it in Congress, because the, who runs a department makes a big difference. And as we've seen in the Trump administration, having people like Betsy DeVos or Ben Carson, who don't have any experience, has been disastrous for the departments. So if we want to be able to see meaningful change happen, Joe Biden's going to need to assemble a good cabinet. And that's another thing that we need to look for, especially progressives, is whether is the types of people that Joe Biden appoints to his cabinet. If he continues to prioritize the voices of people like John Kasich and other never Trumpers and put them in his cabinet, then it does not, will not go over well progressives and it will probably lead to an ineffective two years and a red wave in 2022. I will reiterate that I am relieved, but I am not impressed. I'm interested to see what happens. I know I've said that a lot. Um, this feels like a very neutral stance, but I hope that Biden's administration will actually prioritize the lives of non-cis white heterosexual men instead of operating under the guise of um, policy that prioritizes non-white cis heterosexual men. And, you know, I, it's, it's hard to say exactly what will happen. Don't love Biden's track record, I'm gonna be honest. That's my personal opinion. You know, um, maybe people can change though. Um, <laughs> I feel uh, definitely hopeful about the position of our generation, um, being Gen Z, the Zoomer generation, the best generation. I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful about the mark that we will make and, um, yeah, yeah, we'll see. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of New Perspectives. 
I hope that everyone listening learned something new about the impacts of the election and about the role and influence of Generation Z as we march forward into the next era of American politics. I want to give a huge thanks to the panelists, Alex, Stephanie, Noah, and Terane, both for taking time to speak with me about the elections and for all of the work they did beforehand to follow and analyze the results. If you liked what they had to say and want to hear more from these fantastic commentators, check out nupoliticalreview.com for more from all of the panelists and the other great NUPR writers. I also want to thank Ariana Bennett, one of the podcast producers, for all of her work behind the scenes to make this episode come together. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I wish you well until the 2022 elections.